Yes, hello. Welcome to 1150 AM KKNW and Informed Life Radio. I'm your host, Bernadette Pager. Um, we have just a half hour show today because coming up next is going to be the Husky women's basketball game. Go Huskies. Um, so, but we've got an amazing, powerful half hour for you. So stay tuned, take some notes. I've, I'll have information up on our website, which is informedchoicewa.org. Um, before we get to our fantastic guest here. I, I want to give a little public service announcement. I'm very, very concerned that uh, the CDC is putting out some messaging on social media um, that states, it asks the question, is it safe for me to get a COVID-19 vaccine if I would like to have a baby one day? And then within the post text, they say, yes, People who are trying to become pregnant now or who plan to try in the future may receive the COVID-19 vaccine when it becomes available to them. There is no evidence that fertility problems are side effects of any vaccine, including COVID-19 vaccines. There is no routine recommendation for taking a pregnancy test before you get a COVID-19 vaccine. Even if you are already pregnant, you may choose to be vaccinated when it's available to you. There is currently no evidence that antibodies formed from COVID-19 vaccination cause any problem with pregnancy. And then they give a link for you to go explore, which basically says, it just repeats that information. Um, this is particularly appalling because if you go over to the National Institute of Health website, they have a media advisory that says this. The manufacturers of currently available vaccines excluded pregnant and lactating people from the clinical trials needed to obtain emergency use authorization. Now that the vaccines have been distributed, the US CDC and the FDA will obtain information from those who receive them on their potential impact during pregnancy, as well as information on infant outcomes. While these data will prove useful, pregnant people and their clinicians must make real-time decisions now about the vaccine based on little or no scientific evidence that applies specifically to them. So when you compare those two, it's to me, it's just so appalling. This is not, this is not informed consent. This is intentional, to me, deceptive language, trying to get people to get the vaccine so they can find out, is it safe or not? But um, I just beg of you, do your homework, um, You know, find out what else can you can do to protect yourself or if you're pregnant or thinking about coming pregnant. And we do know that women in their childbearing years, um, you know, young women, they are least likely to have a poor outcome to COVID-19. It's they, the, the numbers just don't uh, show them to be at great risk at all from harm from COVID-19. Um, when our guest um, comes on here, I'm going to introduce him. I'm going to ask him. He is an expert on both COVID-19 and the COVID-19 um, treatments. Okay. So uh, with no further ado, I'm going to bring you, I'm just so honored to bring you Dr. Pierre Corey. He is a highly respected and admired pulmonary and critical care specialist, also an associate professor of medicine at St. Luke's Aurora Medical Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He, Bernadette, yeah. I'm so sorry, I have to interrupt. I've, I oh. don't know if I did. I actually am no longer there. Okay. Um, I, I moved on, so I'm not, I'm no longer employed by them. Oh, no problem. Thank you for that correction. You're a hard man to keep up with. I, uh, exactly. 
I appreciate you jumping in there. Um, but your credentials go on and on as yes. far as your experience um, all over the place. So um, correct me if I'm wrong here, but over the past year, you have led ICUs and multiple COVID-19 hotspots. And yeah. your team at the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance have not only developed effective treatment protocols that use both nutrients and drugs, but you have continued to evolve and refine these protocols and worked above and beyond the call of duty to ensure that these life-saving measures are known about by all. That's true. <laughs> uh, that, that I'm gonna, I, I can verify that. There's no question. <laughs> Yeah, and I've got to say that Dr. Corey and the FLCCC team are among my heroes, and I seriously want to figure out how to nominate them for a Nobel Prize, and I'll quit ah. embarrassing him now, but... Ah. I mean, you know, I, heroes have just risen in this. And th there's another group of doctors with also Frontline in their name who are also heroes to me for standing up and really just trying to help um, people, patients as best they can. So... Thank you so much for coming on the show today to share your wisdom, what you've learned, your hard-earned experience. Um, yeah. Sh shall we start right off there so I don't forget? Um, and, and, and on this show, we don't give medical or legal advice. So anything Dr. Corey or I say is just general information for you to go explore. But, you know, what about a pregnant woman? Um, who may be exposed to COVID or who is diagnosed with COVID, what can she do? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously pregnant women is just the classic question in medicine, right? Because uh, evidence-based medicine and research uh, never involves pregnant women. We just, they're just never in trials. And so you never, you know, any outcome or recommendations that you have from a medicine uh, generally does not refer to sample size of pregnant women. So you always have to sort of reason it out. Um, I liked some of what you said, which is, you know, everything in medicine is a risk benefit analysis, right? And we use as much data to make our judgments on risks and benefits. And at the end of the day, you're making the best judgment you have on risks and benefits. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to start out by saying I'm an expert at ivermectin. And as you said, a lot of the therapeutics, I'm not a vaccine expert, but I have been studying it. So I don't want to say that my opinions on the vaccine uh, are the most informed. Um, but I will say that, you know, I am uh, really optimistic for them uh, in the long run. I hope they do have a long lasting efficacy. And I, and I hope that the, the safety data does hold up. But the problem is we just don't have that data yet, right? Where there's too many unknowns on it. Uh, there's unknowns on pregnant women, although on the face of it, I don't know why it would be dangerous. But again, a risk benefit, uh, young women are not the ones who are suffering most from this disease. Again, I don't want anyone to get sick. And ultimately the health of the baby really depends on the health of the mother. And mm -hmm. so, you know, uh, babies do best when the mother stays healthy, whether a vaccine is going to do it um, or avoiding the vaccine and treating only in case they get ill. That's another option. Here's the issue I'll talk about with ivermectin, though, is that we're not reassured with ivermectin as prophylaxis for the young uh, pregnant woman uh, for a couple of reasons. Like you said, they're young. Generally, the risks of getting COVID are not high. Uh, and we do have animal data of teratogenicity, which is that there have been birth defects in animal models uh, with ivermectin. So mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to use ivermectin on a chronic basis for prophylaxis in a young woman. And then if you were to decide on treatment, you know, I would have, uh, I would use my judgment. I, I, what I say is I would treat a pregnant woman, um, hopefully outside the first trimester. And 
only if they had anything but mild symptoms. You know, I, I would not have a quick trigger to use ivermectin in, in an early pregnancy or a pregnant woman, but I would use it if I had to, because again, keeping the mother healthy and safe and free of illness is the key there. And so I think you just have to use a lot of judgment and every case is a little bit different. Like I said, where they are in pregnancy mm-hmm. um, and, and what their risk, comorbidities, how ill they are. Uh, so, it, so it's hard, but like you said, we're not giving medical advice, but this is, I'll share how I would think about this problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but Excellent. listen, we, we want more data on everything. We just don't have the data there. You know, you don't have the data that it's toxic or bad for a pregnant. We also don't have the data for safety, right? And so there's a lot of unknown there. And so I can't tell the individual person what to do. Um, mm-hmm. But I agree. I don't, I don't think COVID is at uh, that risk for young women. Now, the, the one trick, though, as a medical doctor is pregnant women, pregnancy is odd it's actually considered by some to be a form of immunodeficiency. I mean, the pregnant women actually can actually are, are at risk of getting certain infections around pregnancy, especially peripartum. Um, so that's a little bit later on, but it's, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a whole other kettle of wax. Anyway, that, yeah. those are the thoughts that I'd share on that. Okay. I do really appreciate that. Now you're the mask plus and the math plus uh, protocols include some nutrients that you know, maybe um, a pregnant woman would want to check with her trusted health um, advisor whether or not, and these are things that probably they're already taking some vitamin C, vitamin D. There may be levels that are safest to take during pregnancy, zinc, um, yep. all of those things are protective and they're in your protocol as in both the prophylactic and the treatment protocols. Yep. Yeah. No, I mean, the, we, those are uh, things that, uh, again, going back to risk benefit, these are generally very safe uh, supplements. We know they're associated or even validated uh, to lead to better outcomes, less mm-hmm. risk of illness and better outcomes if you get certain viral illnesses. And certainly in COVID, for vitamin D, it's there. Vitamin C just has, you know, decades of data showing general association with better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um Zinc and melatonin for anti-inflammatory and, and viricidal properties, uh, we think those are good. And they're actually very safe, right? So mm-hmm. we're not taking any risks there. Um, mm-hmm. Are there large randomized controlled trials supporting them? No. Is there a good rationale, physiology, experience, and expertise of a whole wealth of literature and a lot of other illnesses? Yes. You know, mm-hmm. I, I sometimes remind folks that our protocols are very much evidence-based, but they're also expertise-based. And, and it's those are the two things that we have. We use our as evidence and our expertise. Mm-hmm. I, I love that. Um, do you want to tell a little bit, like, when this all started, uh, you know, what your thoughts were and how you you landed on the protocols that you did? Yeah. So, first of all, so the, the group of us that started, with, it starts with Dr. Marek, right, who's my close friend and colleague and very well known around the world, very famous, one of the probably the high, one of the highest published uh, intensivists in the world. We're all ICU doctors. Uh, some of us have dual specialties, like I'm also a lung specialist, but we got together um, when we saw this thing coming and Umberto Maduri from Italy, you know, all of his colleagues and some of his closest friends, they're just getting hit so hard in Italy. I'm from New York. I know pretty much every ICU director in New York City. And, you know, I was talking, I was in Madison at the time when they got hit. And we were just trying to figure out this disease. And so we're using our decades of experience. We we have almost 2,000 peer-reviewed publications. We all have little subspecialties within our specialties that we're famous for. A lot of us are accomplished. We've written textbooks. And so we're pretty well, uh, well-known, accomplished doctors in our field. And we got together and we just tried to figure out the pathophysiology and come up with what we thought were the best medicines to counteract that. Um, 
And we borrowed protocols from other critical illness states like sepsis. Um, and we sort of amended that to, um, to COVID-19. And I don't know if you know, but I was, I testified in the Senate back in May. Um, and I testified to the world that uh, it was critical that they use corticosteroids. And, and, and that was at a time when the entire uh, world's health organizations, whether international and national, every single country, they only had one opinion about COVID treatment, which was don't use steroids. <laughs> and I went before the Senate and I said, absolutely, you need to use steroids. It's absolutely critical. There's about five ways in which I knew that, or we knew that. Um, and I put that out there and I was uh, roundly attacked and criticized and dismissed until seven weeks later, the Oxford uh, University came out with their trial on corticosteroids and it showed that it was life saving in COVID. So mm -hmm. that was act one, right? And, and that was the centerpiece of our math plus protocol, which is for the hospital. That's really where we excel. And although Dr. Merrick always had like a prophylactic and early treatment as the FLCCC, we did not have an early treatment protocol. Um, we just kind of stuck to what we knew, which is the hospital. When we developed it was the sort of act two was when we discovered ivermectin. And just so you know, what we did really since the pandemic started is all we've done is follow all the therapeutics, read papers, or constantly reading papers. I try to keep up with Paul Merrick, who probably reads 15 papers cover to cover a day. I could maybe do five. And even then I'm reading abstracts. But, you know, we're all of us are reading and sharing different piece, uh, different manuscripts. We've also published a lot. I think uh, I've published 10 papers in COVID on various aspects of COVID. And, and so we've been doing a lot of work. Now, we always had ivermectin on our list, but it was never in our protocols until around October. Dr. Marek, at that time, there's a whole bunch of studies that came out on various other therapeutics, tocilizumab and convalescent plasma, more on hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, which is a joke, you know, all of these therapeutics, and they were all failing. They were all failing trials. But then we looked at ivermectin and we saw a signal. And you saw like one little study which showed like quite a positive outcome and then another one and then another one. And they were popping up from all different countries and centers around the world. And then I saw this unbelievable paper from uh, an analyst named Juan Chimier who has since joined our alliance. Um, and he had been since May looking at epidemiologic data in regions around the world where ivermectin distribution campaigns were initiated in an attempt to treat this disease. And I, I was blown away by this paper. I was absolutely blown away. It basically showed the solution to COVID, which he was showing in areas where they had widespread ivermectin distributions. They were eradicating COVID from cities and regions, mostly in Peru. But now he has examples from many areas around the world. And if, if you look, if you're following ivermectin over the last month, and I'll, I'll slow up here for a second, Bernadette, but in the last month, so many countries and regions have adopted ivermectin in their treatment protocols. And Juan is looking at the case counts and excess death rates in all these regions. They're all plummeting. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's, it's the whole thing is so sad because you can see this thing working in real time amongst the population. Yet in these developed countries, they're still like screaming that they want some big randomized control trial. And it's really sad and frustrating. Um, so anyway, we found the signal around ivermectin. We put together a manuscript. I worked night and day on that for two months. In fact, I couldn't finish it because every time I went to finish it, another trial would pop out. <laughs> so I kept adding trials and trials. And finally, after 27 controlled trials, 16 of them randomized, 
we submitted and it and it actually passed through peer review and it's about to be available online for publication within the next week. It is so exciting and congratulations, all that hard work. And, you know, I know you've given such hope to people around the world because people discover it. And I have almost every day somebody calls me or texts me or emails me and says that somebody they know just got better with ivermectin. Oh, yeah. You know, and, you know, it's oh, yeah. just, and, and, and doctors so, are saying, order it, have it on hand in case you need that. it, you know? So I, I almost chuckle, which is like, you're actually not allowed. So in this modern era of medicine where we've literally lost our minds with this. So I consider myself an expert at evidence-based medicine, which is, you know, the use of trials, data, real world data, observation, randomized. And, and there's a lot of difficulty we have in sifting through and interpreting data. The problem with evidence-based medicine is it's largely moved to what I call RCT fundamentalism, which is this, this belief that any other data, if it doesn't come out of a randomized controlled trial, it's not to be believed and not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. And and it's it's crazy. You can't cite data unless it comes from some pristine randomized controlled trial. And there are no pristine randomized controlled trials. They all have warts. <laughs> but the reason why I'm laughing is that I'm using air quotes. Like you're not allowed to use anecdotal data. It's like a felony in medicine. Like if you actually say, hey, I was using drug A, and it wasn't really working. And then I tried drug B and you know what? The patients were getting better really quickly. That's called anecdotal and you're not allowed to use that. But ivermectin, beyond all of the trials data and the epidemiologic data, I've been using it for three months. And I haven't, I can't recall a, a, a medicine in which patients are feeling so terribly and literally within 12 to 24 hours, and they can be day five of illness, day three, day seven, but mm -hmm. usually within 12 to 24 hours, they're like, doc, I started to feel a lot better. My chest cleared up. My fever went away. I had a fever for eight days. I took ivermectin. My fever went, you know, it's mm -hmm. almost like Tylenol for a fever. And so I'm like really impressed uh, with my clinical experience with it, but I'm really most impressed with the data behind it, which is just really just mountains of it coming from many areas around the world. Yeah. So now it's just a matter of, you know, we, we're, we're fighting the sort of the bureaucracy of regulations yeah. to get it out there. And so trying to get some grassroots movement because it's legal to use, it's available to use. Um, it now has the rating of neutral, which is almost like, you know. Well, it's the same thing as monoclonal antibodies and convalescent plasma, which right. were used widely. I mean, everyone's yeah. still giving convalescent plasma and that never worked. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it has this neutral recommendation, which means they're waiting for more data. But I got to tell you, Bernadette, this grassroots movement, I can tell you that uh, the baseline prescriptions in this country was 5,000 a month. And as of now, it's about 18 times that wow. a month. So they, it's, it's skyrocketing. We know of increasing numbers of hospitals and doctors and regions um, that are now adopting ivermectin in this country. So it's all kind of like under the table, at least in the mm -hmm. U.S., mm -hmm. but we have increasing numbers of countries that have approved it in their national guidelines. So our, the, the biggest one was last week was Slovakia, which is part of the yes. EU. They're like a runaway renegade state. They, they departed from the rest of the Europe and they approved it. So Macedonia, Slovakia, South Africa, Zimbabwe, um, Nicaragua recently, Belize recently, um, Mexico, huge parts of Mexico now have adopted it um, because of the data that they saw. And one of the, the craziest examples is the state of Chiapas in Mexico really popular state in the southern tip of Mexico, they approved the use of ivermectin August 1st. Their numbers in Chiapas after August 1st 
are completely different than the rest of Mexico. And so people are starting to see this and they're mm -hmm. falling on the bandwagon. So it'll happen. It's going to happen. It's just, I don't know, the U.S. is going to be late to the party, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I really feel I keep calling this like a COVID chaos and it, it yeah. shone, shine, shone, whatever they say that spotlight on a lot of the problems in, in public health and in regulation and so much going on. And people are really seeing it. Doctors are, well, doctors have probably seen it a long time, but never has it impacted them so much before. And I feel like it's going to lead to some really good reforms when we get through oh, this, so. you know. You know, that's, you know, definitely, um, definitely our goal. Go there's ahead. going to be a reckoning for sure, because there's a lot of things that I think, uh, to put it kindly, many will wish they had done differently. This ivermectin story is a really ugly one. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and it's really ugly for hydroxychloroquine as well. The, yeah. the papers that were false papers that were published had to be retracted. What was behind that? You know, just the um, yeah. hydroxychloroquine is way messier. Um, I mean, in the end, I think it probably works. It's just not a very potent medicine. It's not as potent as a lot of claim that it was. Um, mm -hmm. It's probably more potent than the ivory tower thinks it is, you know, so the two <laughs> somewhere in between. But yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, is ivermectin is, is incredibly potent medicine. In fact, in the trials where they actually had hydroxychloroquine in the control group, um, there was really profound impacts of ivermectin. So I, I kind of just moved past hydroxychloroquine. To, to me, ivermectin will be the standard of care around the world, just like corticosteroids became the standard of care around the world uh, after the recovery trial. Um, it's going to happen around the world. The only question is when. Um, I think it's the WHO that's going to solve the world's problems here. I, I think they're they're actually going to come out with a recommendation latest mid-March, earliest is early March. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Guess. Yeah, and if that, it's April, well, then I'm off by two weeks. Okay. Well, that gives us a lot of hope. Well, this is this has been so fantastic. I'm going to give you, a, you know, like a minute here to wrap up. What actions can people take? What would you recommend people do to... It sounds so there. lame and trite, but like, I mean, you know, you can work on your doctor. It tends to not work. Only about 10% of doctors can be turned when I say turned by the emerging evidence that we've compiled. I think things are going to change once my manuscript is actually published on peer review. Uh, mm -hmm. It's actually a prominent journal. And I think that changes the face of how people will think. Mm -hmm. Um Writing your congressman, woman, senator doesn't work. Too many people have written letters throughout the pandemic. Letters don't work. They're not being read. They're not being acted on. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't know what the individual can do. I mean, I, I think really our healthcare leaders have to lead. Um, and mm -hmm. I do think, like you said, maybe some uh, congressmen or senators who have oversight over the health agencies can maybe exert some influence there uh, to get them to look at these repurposed drugs a little bit more carefully. Um, but it, I got to tell you, it's very frustrating. Yeah, we, we've encountered that here. We we started up a petition um, and had over the weekend, we had like 700 names on it, petitioned our Secretary of Health and Board of Health to um, bring in a committee of people to look at the effective treatment so that it can be made known as far and wide and possible in the state as, pos as could be. And um, we were told it's not in their wheelhouse. Right. It would do nothing about treatments. They're and waiting I think for the NIH. The NIH is just sitting there. Everybody's yeah. waiting for that. I want there to be a renegade state. 
Some state, <laughs> like what Slovakia, like we need a Slovakia here. I don't know we if do. it's New York or Massachusetts or we Washington do. State, but a, a really bold, courageous healthcare commissioner of one of the states looks at the data, finds it compelling, and makes it a state protocol. That sounds great to me. Thank you, Dr. Corey. Have a great weekend. Sounds good. Okay. This has Take been 1150 AM KKNW and Inform Life Radio. Have a great weekend, everyone.